0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner GoGo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and GoGo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and GoGo. I'm Dr. Shane. You're in store for an hour of science now, and on the line with me are some of my great team members. Good morning, Dr. Jen.
1: Good morning, Dr. Shane. What a lovely, sunny morning it is out
0: there. I know. It's great. Uh, You know, can't complain. Can't complain. Dr. Ewan, good morning. Good morning. Your volume is a little low, buddy. I'm just going to try and turn you up. And Chris KP, he's freaking out. What's going on down there, buddy?
2: (laughs) Well, the sun has just broken out here, which is lovely. Yeah, is spot on. It's... uh... It's good if you if you don't think about it too much. I think the world is just about fine.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I love the fact you guys are all enjoying this out there. I am in the studio and and for those who've been in the triple R studios will know that um, that the studio people, the people who control the studios, keep it at a sort of Arctic temperature to protect I am guessing the equipment, but it tends to also preserve me. I'm I'm you know much younger than I would otherwise be because of the low temperature exposure. But um, yeah, you guys, I could see that You're all in the sun there. And I'm like, uh, I'm freezing my butt off in here, people. Anyway, no, it's, it's all, all good. right,
1: Shane. The room, the room I'm in, mean, is neither sunny nor warm, so
0: I'm, I'm with you. It's all good. <laughs> now we have a huge show uh, in store for you today, folks. Um, some really amazing guests. We're going to talk to an author of a book that is uh, taking up a lot of my time reading at the moment because it's awesome. Um, we also have uh, someone who's going to be talking about some aspects of how we integrate uh, wind and solar into the grid in a way that's uh, workable, and then we're going to talk to a geologist and those who. have been listening to the show for a long time. Now, I get very excited when we have Joel just on the show because I collect rocks and stuff and stuff, but we're going to start off with some news. Um, Dr. Jen, do you want to kick us off?
1: I would love to kick us off. And I want to talk about playing the piano with 11 fingers. Can all our listeners just put your hands out? Just imagine <laughs> how would it be to have eleven fingers playing the piano? Chris KP is just holding up his fingers He's and trying to, get me to imagine there's eleven. <laughs> so, so we all know that lots of work is being done on robotic digits and, and limbs for people who have these physical limitations. Because obviously, if you're missing a, a digit or a limb, that's going to have a pretty profound impact on some of the things you can and can't do. And there are researchers at Imperial College London who've been working on a third thumb, which basically straps onto your hand next to your little finger, and you can control that thumb by electrical signals created by moving your foot. So pretty, pretty nifty. But, of course, the key question is it's all very well and good to have this extra digit, but unless you can actually have very fine motor control over it, it's probably not that useful. You know, it's, it's no point in mm. just having it kind of moving around. It's actually got to be able to do exactly what you want it to do. So the researchers decided that they would test it with something that clearly requires a lot of dexterity and fine motor control, and that is playing the piano. And in particular, they wanted to work out whether they could predict which people would find it relatively easy to adopt the use of this additional thumb and gain quite good control over it, Um, and, and who wouldn't, because that's kind of important to know. And so what they wanted to do then was work with some people who were already good piano players, very experienced piano players, and some people who'd never played the piano at all, and then work out if they could start adopting the use of this extra thumb to show whether it depends on your, you know, your previous ability to do something essentially. And what they worked out is, and, and before I should say, before they started using the additional thumb, they tested people's general dexterity and, and timing and reflexes and that sort of thing. And it turned out that regardless of their experience playing the piano, all of the people they tested could um, adopt the use of this extra digit really quickly. So, within an hour they could all play simple piano pieces that incorporated the extra thumb, which I think is really amazing. And what predicted how good you were at doing that and how quickly you could learn to direct this additional digit, it wasn't to do with whether you could already play the piano or not. It was to do with your general dexterity. Mm. So, what that means is that you could this is saying that you, it doesn't rely on your previous experience doing something to be able to adopt the use of this additional digit and so they're they're saying this is really exciting and suggests that there could be big advances along the on the way for people who are missing parts of their body digits or limbs that are really important so they're now working on a prototype for a whole new highly functional robotic hand and this work would suggest that you can, you know, you will be able to use this hand with with not too much extra kind of training, which it just makes me think of Harry Potter when Wormtail got his extra special hand from Voldemort that could do anything. I'm like, you know, imagine being able to do that for somebody.
2: Jen, you have you have reignited, you've reignited my dream of a prehensile tail.
1: Yeah, exactly, Chris. <laughs> like the sky's the limit here, right? Just imagine, and imagine if you go go if you could go to the Olympics with a prehensile tail, Chris. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so oh. you, the Olympics has become just... So there's so many more sports that need to be incorporated now. Yeah. I, I, I love it.
0: You, you want a tail. I want wings. Like, I want, yeah, I want well, something... I'm not sure if you had
2: wings. Yeah. But you, yeah. You, that's a big-ass uh, structure. this The physics part of that. I'm is, okay is with It's going to be hard,
3: yeah. I'm okay but with But that's that. I it works. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take will slip. Kills? Yeah. Kills <laughs> slip, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think admit, you need a
1: lot of... I think you'd need a lot of internal changes to actually get those gill slits to work, though. Whereas yeah. in, mm, yeah. you know,
2: I love the fact that Jen's offered up a thumb, and we've gone tail, wings, gill slits. I feel it's like Ewan like doesn't really want to do anything; he just wants to show off. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see how it goes.
2: Ewan,
0: uh, what have you got for news? Let's let's test that showing off. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, well, I wanted to talk about a pretty fascinating study that's all about killing things and, and, it's, about, <laughs> and it's about tool use and it's also about actually traditional uh, ecological knowledge as well. So a really fascinating story uh, came out uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think, but it was published in the journal Arctic, but it's about polar bears and walrus. So we know around the world that animals use tools. So as an example, it's been shown that elephants will lob a a log onto an electric fence to get over it and disable the fence. We know that chimpanzees will um, fashion spears to kill other animals. So we know dolphins will use sponges to basically push along on the bottom of the seafloor and and get things to sort of um, come out and eat them. But what's really fascinating is for a long time there's been reports uh, from uh, Inuit to, you know, people, hunters, and also depicted an artwork of polar bears lifting up big pieces of ice or rocks and throwing them and bonking it on the head of a walrus, stunning them, and then it either kills them outright or they then, they then go down and finish them off and bop them on the head even more. Now, to put it in perspective, a walrus weighs about a 1,000 kilograms. They're big animals and they're dangerous, particularly the males with the big tusks. And a polar bear, a really large polar bear is about 700 kilograms, but they range between about 300 and 600 on average. And the females are much smaller. And walrus was to have really big, hard heads. It's actually really hard to, to break their skulls. And so Inuits have been talking about this for a long, long time, saying we've seen this happen and there's polar bears that do this. And so this study actually went through all the records of when this is alleged to have occurred. And they sort of looked at the probabilities of this occurring and they said, look, on, on, on face value, this looks like it's completely legit. And what was an interesting kind of study, uh, I guess, add-on to this was that not long after this study came to light, an independent researcher shared some footage um, with these people of a polar bear with a camera that had been strapped to it. And it showed this um, polar bear, this is a female polar bear, pushing a big piece of ice along and then chucking it at a seal. So it seems to be that um, there's a, a proportion of these population of polar bears that learn how to hunt walrus, which is a really, really tricky prey item to to knock on the head and dispatch of um but obviously high reward so you know big big animal huge amount of fat it's a pretty healthy you know good meal for a polar bear so if you can can pull it off it's um high reward so um I think it's a fascinating study just I think you know aside from sort of bonking walruses on the head with pieces of rocks and ice I think it also speaks to again probably you know obviously how much we should be really listening to and respecting um the knowledge of, of indigenous you know cultures and so forth and we could learn obviously a lot more if we'd done that a lot earlier but Obviously, mm. we can still do that now. So it's—I think—it's a fascinating study on a whole, a whole range of um, fronts.
0: You, you and uh, can the, can the walrus typically outrun a polar bear most of the time? Is that is that the same? Not scenario? outrun,
3: not outrun. I mean, they can slide <laughs> into the water. Yeah. But There's actually there's actually um, uh, instances of uh, walruses killing polar bears. Right, as Right. Well. Right. So, like I said, you know, a walrus is not something you just want to walk up to and sort of try and. <laughs> Try and take down. on because particularly the males, they're massive and yeah. they've got those big tusks. So hence why the polar bears basically have to either, in one case they say, go up on top of the cliff essentially and throw it off the edge yep. of the cliff. Or they've shown that the females will sneak up basically inch by inch behind a walrus and then right at the end stand up and basically bonk the, the walrus <laughs> on their head. So it's um it's, great. it's pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, the, walrus great is ever stuff. Trying
2: to, the walrus is ever trying to avoid... Seriously, like cliff faces or areas with rocks or loose ice mm. or anything, do they, do they, yeah. is that part
3: of their thinking? Uh, I mean, good question. I mean, obviously the, the the large area over which Walrus and Polar Bear occurred, yeah. there's going to be areas where there's not, You know hills and cliffs, and there's going to be areas where there there is. So Mm. yeah, I mean, Mm. I guess there would be a risk. But also, I guess if there's a if there's limited pullout sites or places where walrus breed, Mm. um, then they need to use those. So I guess there's a sort of a trade-off there as well.
0: Yeah, they put up little signs, Chris. You know, (laughs) falling large chunks of ice here. They they (laughs) tend to stay clear of those falling rocks um, and predatory bears. Yeah, it's it's the (laughs) real sneaky ones that come up behind you and just smack you over the head with a giant club of ice. They're the ones that you've got to watch out for. Yeah. <laughs> interesting stuff. Uh,
2: Chris KB, where do you got for us? Uh, I wanted to uh, drift into the area of smell, if, if you don't mind, which is safe uh, on a Zoom call, I think. Uh, so, uh, because because what, what is interesting about this is that we didn't really know, we didn't, hadn't really described uh, smell receptors until like the, the early 90s. This is actually, you know, it's really quite a recent thing, even though smell is such an important part of our existence. In fact, there's a funny story about this. The um, the Nobel Prize of 2004 went to um, a couple of researchers, Axel, Richard Axel and Linda Buck. And Linda Buck's then boss... Um, had to, took the call from the, uh, the Nobel people because they couldn't find her. They couldn't contact her. And he thought at two in the morning when he got this call, it was someone applying for a job, <laughs> essentially gave yep. the Nobel committee a serve and said, back off, call it during business hours. Might be a good start. <laughs> um, anyway, um, but so the story goes that, um, We've only known them for a short period of time. We don't really know how they work. We just know that they're there somehow. And, you know, you would generally speaking, receptors are quite specific. They're quite, you know, there's a specific chemical molecule that binds to a specific receptor, and that's how we get the smells. But there's a lot of smells out there. If you think about the fact that, so coffee, for example, um, is actually made of, you know, more than 200 chemical components, all of which are quite different to each other, and none of which actually smell like coffee by itself as it happens. So that's a hell of a lot of things to receive but we don't really know how it works until very recently. So some researchers at Rockefeller University in New York used cryo-electromicroscopy, which sounds great, but essentially <laughs> that's freezing stuff and firing electrons at it till you see things. Um, but you can see these in incredible detail, which made it easier for them. And they were focusing in particular on the jumping bristle tail, which is a ground-dwelling insect, um, and only recently had its, its genome sequence and has only got five olfactory receptors only got five. So if you're thinking about it's going to understand the world around it and insects are very into their sense of smell um, but it's only got five Um, it, it stands to reason that what they found was that you don't need to have loads of these things So, even though frequently receptors are incredibly specific, it turns out that olfactory ones and an olfactory receptor can bind to quite a number of different molecules. So, it could pick up quite a few different things, um, opens up the ion channel, sends the information in there. Then it goes into the brain. The brain's going to go, okay… This one picked up that thing and, and also this one and that other receptor picked up something different and there's something going and then put it all together and work out what this might happen to be. But they're far more flexible and far more um far more receptive, if you like, to different molecules than a lot of other receptors. And so it's a different way of understanding the uh the the, the world around us than for a lot of other senses.
0: Mm. It's fascinating stuff because I mean the 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 smell receptor for us and and the way in which we do that's so connected to memory. As well. Yeah. Your, our ability to trigger you know, long past memories in a very, very substantial way is connected totally. to our ability to detect those molecules. And you wonder, in an evolutionary sense, you know, what was the purpose of that? Was it when I smell this particular type of excrement that is coming from a tiger and I need to go <laughs> yeah, elsewhere? Run. You, know, you wonder yeah. where, where did that adaptability <laughs> come from and how? You know, we're so good at it. We're so good at distinguishing. You know, so many different.
2: Yeah, it's a really important yeah. part of how we how we are. Yeah,
0: and
1: I think it's what you just said, Shane. It's about threat. You know, yeah. even a, a poison or something that you might not have smelt for decades, it's absolutely in your best interest to remember what it was and that it killed somebody yeah. in, in the past, and so you don't go anywhere near You know, anywhere near absolutely. it again. Absolutely, yeah. and
2: an opportunity too. I reckon too. It's like you know, you, you 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 remember the smell of raisin toast because you know it's nice. <laughs> it <was> awesome.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. <laughs> R.
0: On the line with me now is Dr. Christine Ball. She's a specialist and from the Alfred Hospital, a clinical adjunct associate professor from Monash University and the honorary curator of the Jeffrey K. Museum of Anesthetic History. Welcome to the show, Christine. Good to have you on. Thank you,
4: Shane. Good to be here.
0: Now we're here primarily I mean, we're primarily here to talk about your new book but I might just you know there's a there is a fair I think 50/50 chance I'm just going to absolutely ask you a million questions about what happens when you're going under anaesthetics. so but first of all let's let's talk about your new book it's called The Chloroformist, um and I've I've started reading it people who listen to this show a lot know that I am a, I'm brutal when it comes to books because I don't have a lot of time and I'm I'm sad to say that your book has dragged me in and I'm gonna to have to dedicate a lot of damn time to this book because it is it really is beautifully written. And just give us a bit of background on, you know, what what sort of led you to to write this book, what it's generally about. Just give us the sort of cliff notes on that.
4: Okay, so I didn't originally set out to write a book. At the museum, at the College of Anesthetists, we found a case book which um, had been pressed into a picture frame and forgotten about for about 80 years, I think. And when we opened up the picture frame, we found this book that belonged to Joseph Clover. Now, Joseph Clover is an important figure in the history of anaesthesia. He's on the college crest in, in Britain, on their college crest, but not a lot's been written about him. And so this case book was a mystery and... Mm. I set about trying to solve the mystery of why we had the case book and what had happened to all these other papers. And as a result, I went on a journey um, that was far bigger than I anticipated and found papers all over the world and started to put together the story of not just his life as a surgeon first and then an anesthetist, but also the story of the times and all the things that were going on at the same time. It is basically the story of the first 35 years of anaesthesia in Britain, but it's also a bigger story of... All the other things that were going on at the time—the wars, the revolutions, mm. the international exhibitions—all of that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I love that interplay between the the individual and society at the time. And in fact, you know, the, the way you start the book is—you um, know—it's fairly graphic in a sense because it talks about what surgery was like before anaesthetics. And I was reading that oh. thinking, "My goodness, I'm glad I was born <laughs> in the 20th century," um, because this this must have been a you know absolutely horrid period for. Uh, uh, not just the patients but also those learning the craft of surgery this uh, I mean there must have been a massive dropout rate we talk about you know dropout rates today but back then yeah. some of them must have dropped out under those circumstances
4: yeah definitely and I think that was the thing that really captivated me when I started reading about reading his own case notes realizing that these people all of him him and his contemporaries like Joseph Lister they all learn to operate before anesthesia and and then anesthesia came along, which was a massive change. So so that was a really um, pivotal time in in medicine and I hadn't really thought about the consequences of learning to operate without anesthesia and then having to pivot to learn to do it with anesthesia. So I found that really fascinating. yeah, obviously it was a huge disruptor, anesthesia. Yeah. What well, what
0: was uh, what was in your view the biggest change that occurred there? Because I can I think everyone can imagine that the incredible pain and suffering and struggling of the patient, you know, went away. And that would have been a big thing. But did the way we conduct surgery change as a re- result of anaesthesia as well? Because you know, one of the things that I know you touch on in in the book um, is things like the time length and the approach. So presumably a lot, a lot more changed than just having to deal with a, a patient that was an, in excruciating pain.
4: Uh, yeah, there were obviously a lot of changes. And that's the other thing about this 35 years. I think anaesthesia and surgery evolved together over that time because it's not like we suddenly got anaesthesia and suddenly we could keep people unconscious for hours and hours and hours and do brain mm-hmm. surgery we have never done before. And don't forget when anaesthesia first came out, we also didn't yet have aseptic surgery. So that evolved later as well over the next 20 years. But um, I think what it did do is give surgeons time to operate and once they had time to operate, they could think more about more nuanced sort of operations. So, for example, within years you see less amputations and more removal of joints or more what we would now call limb conserving surgery. A lot of surgery, though, continued the way it had because there was still a huge risk of infection. And it's only after Joseph Lister brings in antiseptics in the late 1860s that you start to see other really big changes Mm. in, in surgery
0: yeah it 's amazing stuff and it 's interesting one of the things I found um quite striking in your book early on is you make this comment in the introduction around the idea that most people remember their surgeon. And have scars to you know remind them mm. of that individual, but they don't remember the anaesthetist Is this is this sort of commonly known? I, I have a I have a recollection from the last surgery I had, and the the spent a lot of time with me, whereas the surgeon kind of swanned in at the end. You know, I I, ba- <laughs> I barely I barely saw the surgeon except in, in, in their their rooms beforehand when we were planning. But the, I remember the anaesthetist being a, a very strong support mechanism in that environment, uh, both before and after um, I was. Unconscious. It, it seems to me as though they're the sort of forgotten, forgotten individual. You know, much like I guess the nurses are in a similar boat. You know, many yes. of them are forgotten, and everyone thinks about the surgeon, but there are there are other key players.
4: Well, that's good news that you remember your anaesthetist, and I think that certainly is a, a trend that we are spending more time with the patients pre-operatively, and and we're much more involved post-operatively mm-hmm. now. And certainly in the big hospitals like the Alfred where I work, we have. Very operative clinics where we see people and spend a lot of time with them, getting them ready for surgery mentally and physically, and the same afterwards. But you know, most of what happens to them in the operating theatre, they don't remember because that's the intention. And, uh, like you say, not only the anesthetists but the nursing staff, uh, the technicians, the medical reps, all the people who are in the theatre. All contributing to the patient's journey are largely unseen and forgotten.
0: Mm. And in terms of the the anaesthetics we use today, how much have they changed over sort of just recent decades? Because I know my my wife in particular you know, has is one of the people who has a lot of nausea afterwards. But in her last couple of encounters, that hasn't been the case anymore. And I was wondering mm. whether that's a, a difference in drug type or just a difference in skill with the you know, anaesthetist involved.
4: I guess both. So anaesthesia now is much more complicated in, in the days of chloroform and ether, whether it was mm. just one agent. We use many, many different drugs during an anaesthetic. And when we have somebody who has a history of post-operative nausea and vomiting like your wife, we can target the anaesthetic to try and minimise that. And there's a number of things we can do. We can use different sorts of anaesthetics and we can give many different sorts of um, anti-nausea drugs. So it's a combination of things. And and often if I have a patient like your wife who has had a long history of um, nausea and vomiting and then they don't have nausea, nausea and vomiting with the anaesthetic I give them, I often write down the sort of recipe that I've used just for the next anaesthetist to know, well, this worked because there are so many different combinations you could use. It's quite nice for the patient to know what worked for them.
5: Yeah.
0: And in terms of the the other aspects of um, an anaesthetist role, I mean, what's involved there? Because I, I suppose you're doing a, you're doing a lot of monitoring during the surgery. It's not just pumping someone full of drugs until they go to sleep. There's, yeah. I mean, talk us through what that looks like because I think people aren't aware of the complexity of the monitoring and so forth that goes on.
4: So the best way to describe it, I think, is that anaesthetists are acute care physicians. So we 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 render a patient unconscious. That's, that's part of our job. But then from then on, because a patient's unconscious, they can't care for any of their own bodily functions, basically. Yeah. You know, they can't put on more clothes if they get cold. They can't look after their own airway. Uh, They can't can't do so many things. So we monitor everything. We monitor their oxygen levels, their carbon dioxide levels, which give us an indication of ventilation. We monitor the anaesthetic depth. We monitor temperature, um, blood pressure, cardiac rhythm, and um, all of those things, and then other things depending on what the surgery is. So, you know, if the surgeon's operating on the spinal cord, for example, there might be monitoring of the... um, the nerve potential. So the surgeon needs us, for example, in that case, not to paralyze the patient because they need to know that the nerves are working. So it is very complex. And then all of the resuscitation that goes with the surgery. So if, for example, there's a lot of blood loss, then we'll be the people replacing the blood or maybe even asking the surgeon to stop what he's doing for a moment so we can catch up. And if, for example, we've got something like a trauma patient coming to theatre where we might have more than one surgical team working at once because the patient's so desperately unwell, we might have several anaesthetists there as well, resuscitating the patient and, um, you know, getting blood products in and uh, all of that sort of thing. So it's it can get very complicated. You know, you get a, a situation where you're separating conjoined twins, for example. Mm. You'll have multiple surgeons, multiple anaesthetists, multiple Nursing staff, scrub teams—it can get very, very complicated.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating, and, and my understanding too is that uh, you guys are all the sort of superheroes of getting the cannulas into those patients mm-hmm. with difficult to find veins. I mean, this—I've this, got those ones where I can kind of do it myself, so I'm, I'm lucky. But I know a lot of people have this where it's—it's it's actually quite traumatic, and it can be really difficult yeah. and problematic, um, especially you know when they have to have multiple ones done over several days and so forth. And that—that that is the other part that we forget is that an are often brought into wards and so forth to take on that role, aren't they?
4: Yeah, that's right. We, we often go up to the ward um, to to put drips in patients who no one else can get a drip in. I mean, that's what we do. We put drips in every single patient that mm. we anesthetized so we are quite good at it and um, uh, so we do get called often to help out in that regard
0: yeah, yeah. well look Christine I, I, I suppose I have an old link to anesthetics because uh, the first person I ever remember sitting next to in high school was a guy named Craig Humphreys who I believe is now a uh, somewhere in Melbourne They they you know, bumped him <laughs> to him on the street you know about five years ago and that's what he was doing so it's it's great it's been great talking to you good luck with this new book for everyone out there it's called the chlorophaous by Christine Ball. Um, I'm assuming it's available at any bookstore that's worth their weight and people can buy it online. (laughs) I mean, what else have you got to do at the moment? Everyone's in lockdown and when you're not, you know, those of you who you know, have a minute off from schooling at home. And well, I think it's supposed to be called remote learning these days. I get in trouble if I call it schooling at home. But, um, you know, this is this is a really good book. I'm partway through it, loving it so far. I'm a real ditcher of books after three pages if I don't like them. So <laughs> you've, you've got me hooked. You're going you're to take up a lot of my time. Thanks so much for chatting to us today, Christine, and good luck with the book and um, and with all all keeping keeping together all the history of this stuff, because I think it's, it's absolutely fascinating and it's good for people to know where all this came from. So thanks so much. Thank you.
4: Thanks for inviting me,
0: Shane. You're very welcome. Folks, that was Dr. Christine Ball, a special, specialist anaesthetist from the Alfred Hospital and clinical adjunct associate professor at Monash University.
5: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
0: On the line with us now, I've got my colleague, Dr. Ewan, back. He's bumped back into the virtual studio. And we've also got Dr. Christoph Bergmeier from the Department of Data Science and AI at Monash University. Christoph, welcome to the studio.
6: Hello. Pleased to be here. It's
0: great to talk to you. Um, Now, you're working on something really fascinating. I didn't realize we were doing this here in Melbourne and it's amazing. But we hear a lot about the use of solar and wind and other other various sources of energy that are coming online more and more and and how we go about integrating them into our grid. Can you give us a bit of an idea? What are the what are the difficulties with that integration at the moment? What's what's going on there? I mean, I, I know that they're not you know that traditional base load that we get from a disgusting dirty coal fire power plant, but you know what, what? are the difficulties in terms of that integration?
6: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, as you just said, the the problem, the, the main problem is that you uh, can't um, produce energy on demand with those, right? So basically, if uh, on a solar panel, if there's a cloudy day, you will produce less um, mm-hmm. electricity than on a sunny day, and with the wind, the same. If there blows more wind, you produce more energy. But obviously, you need to produce um, as much as you want to consume. So with a coal power plant, you just you need more energy, you fire more coal. Easy as that, right? Um, But with the renewables, you can't do that. Um, And so now um, you, you have that problem that you also need to kind of foresee a bit into the future how much you're going to produce, right? Because if you say, well, in half an hour, how much energy do I need? Then with wind and solar, you don't really know because there might be a cloud coming through or the wind might just change. So you need to kind of look a bit into the future, how much you're going to produce so that you can then just kind of um, make decisions like um, I need to ramp up this gas plant or I need to get this um, this battery kind of charging, discharging. So it's, and obviously closely Um, related to that is kind of the storage problem, right? So Mm. solar doesn't produce at all during the night. Uh, Wind is also some times of the year more than others. So you also kind of need to try to store that energy, right? I think that's a... Well, and and then another thing is that obviously now the, the energy production very often is a lot more distributed, right? So like many... Um, Many manufacturing plants have just rooftop solar, so the grid also needs to be a bit different because it's not this traditional one very big power plant supplying to many, many consumers, but it's now a lot more distributed. Mm.
0: So what does that mean in terms of costs? Because I know that in many cases, our grid really is driven in not only the way it's sort of orientated, but the way it's run on a day-to-day basis by minimization of costs. And if you have... A power source or energy source that is, you know, not not predictable like that. Uh, you know, what does that mean in terms of its cost of integration? Does it does that make it prohibitive, or is that something we can manage?
6: Uh, no, it doesn't make it prohibitive. Um, so basically, so renewable energy is very cheap. I think that's good news, right? So if you just look at the pure production cost, it's the cheapest energy around, which which is quite logical because. The wind and the sun, you get it for free. You don't have to like dig it out of the ground and then ship it somewhere and burn it. So it's a quite cheap source of energy. But now um, one problem, as you said, we, we have to manage this, Integration into the grid, and 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 one thing that we have there is that because it's less predictable, we need to pay other uh, energy producers to produce on short notice, and that's quite a um, that's yeah. a cost which which makes renewables less competitive. They are still quite competitive, but obviously now if you can predict better um, how much you're going to produce for, for them, you need to have less of this buffer of energy of, of possible energy production, so you can make them even. More competitive. Mm-hmm. Now this is this
0: is what you've been working on with your AI systems and so forth. I know in you know when we talk about seismology and earthquake predictions, you know, people talk about minutes being enough because in a minute, you know, I can shut off a gas main, I can turn off electricity, I can, you know, do all the things that I need to do to secure infrastructure. What sort of the time frame do you need in terms of prediction? With wind and solar f- for us to offset those costs, you're talking about of you know needing other electricity sources.
6: Yeah, I think here it's similar. So the the prediction system that we um, ha- that we uh, implemented that does five minutes ahead prediction, mm. right? So. Five minutes into the future, so that you just have enough time to exactly, as you said, switch on and off certain things. But then, um, uh, energy product, um, ener- yeah, so energy production forecasts they also play a role on like day ahead, week ahead, month ahead. So there are different horizons, and, and they are used to make different types of decisions, mm. right? You, you could go all the way up to thirty years out and say, well, where do I need to to really put a new power plant and but the predictions we did is five, minute five minutes ahead. Cool. So
3: so Christoph, obviously there's lots of different types of renewable energy. Um, and some of those obviously need to be located in a specific area, like tidal, as an example. But I was wondering how your modeling sort of looks at, I guess, what's possible in urban areas. So obviously we've got solar, that's a no-brainer. But you know, as an example, is wind possible? So, you know, if you had um, More wind turbines, but smaller ones, would they be inefficient or would they be efficient on top of buildings? But also the battery, right? The storage capacity, because obviously we know that, you know, batteries for the individual landowner can be quite expensive, but we know that people are going down the community battery path. So they they all sort of invest, if you like, into a community battery. But I guess likewise you could have that at at a supermarket or something, right? So I guess I'm kind of curious about. How your modeling looks at you know how people might share the cost, but the resource, but also what resources in terms of renewables you could have in a particular area. So how does it deal with that?
6: Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, well, to to be honest, our research didn't um, look much in that direction. But uh, obviously, I I mean, as as you just said. Having it for each household that has some difficulties. So actually, um, at at Monash we have this Monash microgrid where we actually have a lot of rooftop solar and uh, deployed on site. But then uh, we are also buying energy from a wind farm that is you know somewhere else. Uh, and then on the other hand, we are working with some companies which are maybe large manufacturing companies that have like big sites, and then they put solar rooftop on there. They Buy batteries that have like decent sizes, um, so of course there you can leverage some mm-hmm. some of these advantages. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Christ, Christoph, what what sort of data goes into you making these predictions? Do you have like a hard line to the Bureau of Meteorology or something, and their satellite feeds around cloud cover? I mean, how do you how do you get that five minute of predictability with regards to these sources?
6: Yeah, that's a very good question, and that's actually one one where um, which was one of the main topics of our project. So. Our approach was basically we want to use only the data that is already gathered uh, routinely there. So, Mm -hmm. and for example, a a wind farm, um, the wind turbines, they themselves would have wind sensors. So, they themselves would measure the the wind direction, uh, the power of the wind, like how strong the wind blows, the wind speed. Uh, And a couple of other things, and and we we used only those, right? But now, um, and for solar, it's similar. I mean, these panels, they would measure solar radiance and temperature, some other things that you could get easily. And then, of course, if you want to monitor the cloud cover, I mean, sure, you could use satellite imaging, you could use... Um, cloud cameras and so on. But our approach was really like we, we use what is already gathered on mm. site and, and, and we try to, uh, and we see how, how well the predictions work with that. Yeah. And then another thing, sorry, yeah. And, and then another thing is obviously the horizon that you have, right? So if you want to predict for the next day, you do need a weather forecast, but to predict five minutes out, um, it's basically more like just taking the data that you got.
0: Yeah. Oh, look, it's fascinating stuff, Christoph. I had no idea we were doing this, and I think a lot of people probably have this idea of this sort of static situation where you just get what you get and you, you hope for the best. But the idea of you know, modifying our interactions with the grid and so forth as a result of this sort of modeling is, is impressive, and, and I'm sure this work will be used all around the world. Um, great talking to you today. Thanks so much for, for giving us the time, and, and good luck with the ongoing work. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks, Christoph. Folks, that was Dr. Christoph Bergmeier from the Department of Data Science and AI. And of course, my colleague, Ewan, Rich and, uh, Ewan Richie, uh I will chat to you again real soon, buddy. Triple R on FM Digital Online via the app. Online with me now is Dr. Melanie Finch from the School of Atmosphere and Environment at Monash University. Welcome, Melanie.
5: Thanks so much, Dr. Shane. It's a pleasure to be
0: here. It's great to have you on. I, you know, some listeners of the show will know I'm a bit of a geology freak, meaning I know very little about geology, but I get very excited about geology. I've collected, you know, rocks for many years. And um, so I'm very excited to be talking to you about geology.
5: Oh, excellent! Yeah, it should be fun.
0: Now, let me let me give you a quick link that we have in the show here. Um, you you probably you may not be aware of this, but the pretty much the first scientist to go up uh, to the moon was a guy named Harrison Schmidt on the Apollo seventeen. You, 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 I see you're nodding, so you're aware of this. Yep. You know, they could have sent any scientist, but they sent a geologist for good reason. Um, but what you may not know is that he went there with uh, Captain Gene Cernan, uh, who also walked on the moon and was the last human being to walk on the moon and was on this show a few years ago. So we didn't have Harrison Schmidt, but we did have Gene Cernan. So we we're pretty close to getting the, you know, the, the big ticket geology guest on the show. So that was kind of cool. Way back when.
5: Yeah, that's awesome. Excellent. Now,
0: you have been doing a lot of work um, with the Himalaya mountain range. And I suppose, uh, well, first of all, what is so interesting beyond the fact that it is enormous? You know, why is that area interesting to a geologist?
5: Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it is enormous. It's an example of um, an active tectonic region. So, the Himalaya formed from the collision of two tectonic plates. So, the, the um, Indian tectonic plate smashed into the Eurasian tectonic plate mm-hmm. about 50 million years ago and that caused the uplift of the Himalayan mountain range and yeah it's, it's huge and that um, sort of tectonic process is still occurring today. So what we can see when we go for a walk through the Himalaya is rocks that formed deep within the mountain range so you know 10, 15, 20 kilometers deep that have been pushed up to the surface through that continuing process of mountain building um, and that tectonic process of pushing them plates together and so we can actually walk through the Himalayas and see the very root of the mountain range and see how the rocks have uh, changed shape and deformed as that mountain range was uplifted so it's yeah it's an incredible place to to work absolutely
0: so the geologist Disneyland I suspect in a way
5: yeah, absolutely. There's quite quite a few uh, geology wonderlands around the world, but that is definitely one of the best. Yeah,
0: and and when you're there, and this is one of the things that's always fascinated me about you know geology is, I suppose. You're sort of half historian, half scientist when you're looking at this, aren't you? I mean, because you have to work out when as well as where these rocks came from.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we're trying to understand both of those things to understand the full evolution of a region. So I would, you know, I have collected rocks from the Himalayas and I've taken them back to the lab at Monash Uni and then I've crushed up those rocks and separated out minerals and I figured out the age of those minerals. So I figured out how um, old they are and then I also figured out the chemistry of the rock and, and looked at the rock within its context within the Himalaya to understand, yeah, that whole history. And I guess, you know, the thing about geologists, I mean, we really do see the world. Very different, differently to uh, normal normal people, um, huh. and that's we also we have a completely different uh, time scale. So most people think about you know days, weeks, years, you know that sort of time scale. Geologists think about millions of years and hundreds of millions of years. So the Himalayas were uplifted fifty million years ago. That's like not that long ago to a geologist. Uh, something that is old in geological time is like. 4 billion years old. That would be old to us. So it's, yeah, these completely different uh, ideas about time and length of
0: time. Yeah. And presumably the way you look at rocks and the way a naive uh, rock interested person like myself looks at rocks is very different. I mean, when when I look at some that are crystalline and so forth, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. But the ones that, tell us about like the most exciting sort of rock you've found. I mean, presumably it, it may look very different to the ones that I think are exciting and cool.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and I, I'm looking at your um, your pictures of your mineral collection on Twitter this morning. I was like, yep. those are beautiful, but my rock collection is so different to yours, and yeah. I think you would look at my rock collection and be like, that's pretty ugly because those rocks <laughs> are, you know, alternating bands of grey and white and grey yep. and white. But those rocks tell a story. So when I, I work on a particular type of rock called uh, mylonite, which forms in really deformed zones, so you know when places like the Himalaya are uplifted into the sky, these narrow parts of the rock deform, and I get rocks from that that deformed, really deformed, messed up region and study those. So by looking at those rocks. I can see how the crystals have changed shape. I can date those crystals and figure out how old the rocks are. Um, So I can figure out heaps of different uh, things by looking at these boring-looking rocks. So I look at a rock like these grey and white ugly rocks and I just see, you know, 50 million years into the past. Mm. I see mountain ranges being uplifted. Yeah, and I see these whole, you know, tectonic processes revealed in that rock. So, yeah, the world looks really different to a geologist.
0: Yeah, I bet. Now, we were just talking to uh, another guest from Monash University who was doing some modelling on the use of um, various energy sources from wind and solar. And, and in both of these cases, we know there's a lot of rare earths used, rare earth elements used, and they are damn hard to find and, and in short supply. Part of what you've been doing is is looking at um, you know where, where some of those are located and how that formation works. Tell us about that.
5: Sure. So, yeah, Geologists, part of what geologists do is study where um, certain elements and minerals concentrate in the crust Uh, and we do that so that it's, you know, if we can find these sorts of elements and minerals like rare earth elements in large quantities, then it can be like economic to kind of get them out of the ground in a sustainable, environmentally friendly way. So the way that a lot of these things concentrate is by travelling in Fluids like fluid like water, and then kind of weird fluids that have salt dissolved in them. So these different fluids travel through solid rock, uh, and the way they do that is a lot. A lot of the time, the way they do that is in these really deformed regions of rock. So I'm what we call like a structural geologist. So as well as understanding how uh, the Himalayas are uplifted, I also look at you know places in Australia like Mount Isa where fluids have moved through the rocks in these really deformed zones. Uh, And then concentrated these critical minerals, Mm. so rare earth elements, in certain places. So, yeah, that's really awesome work because it's so important that we find more of these resources if we're going to, you know, find, well, if we're going to be able to build all these wind turbines that we desperately need, these solar panels, electric car batteries, all of those things use like rare earth elements or lithium or cobalt, things that we don't have enough of, need to find more of um, in order
0: to power this green energy revolution. Yeah, now now, Melanie one of the things that's, that's always uh, surprised me is, you know, we don't get a big uh, intro to geology when we're in school. I mean, I remember being in school thinking can I do the subject geology? And they said, no you can do French. And I was like, oh um, you know, and, <laughs> and, and so you get a, a smattering of, of geology in some science subjects and so forth, but it's weeks it's not years. And I I know you've been uh, putting out a little campaign lately on Twitter called 100 Days of Geoscience. Um, tell us about that. I, I, I've been watching it. There's some amazing stuff. Um, how's that going and what are you trying to achieve with that?
5: Yeah, it's, it's going really well. It's pretty exciting. I mean, I love doing it because, you know, give me five minutes and a rock and I will, like, just talk your ear off, you know. I just love talking about the hidden, hidden secrets of rocks. So, it's yeah, I mean, you talk to any geologist, uh, about how they got to where they are now and it's like a weird story it's always a weird story uh it's not it's not that they were in high school and they're like geology is the thing that I want to study at university and then they come you know to me to my classroom you know it's always like oh, I was talking to a you know some lady at a bar and she was a geologist and she said, it made it sound awesome so I thought I'd change. you know it's weird it's always a weird yep. story um, and, yeah, and that's because of what you said, like that we don't teach it in uh, in our schools. So I just really worry. You know, I hear all these weird stories about how my students in undergrad get to me, you know, get into my classroom. And I just worry, you know, they've made it. They're fine. But there are all these people in the world who probably would love being a geologist, but they just kind of don't know it exists. And so... My hundred days of geoscience campaign, uh, I'm running yeah on Twitter and also on Instagram, is about introducing people more to the secret life of rocks. You know, telling them you know just by these photos of these rocks what I can tell about the geology of the place. That rock came from, and you know how we can how we geologists read the rocks and see you know entire mm-hmm. mountains being lifted up or you know and cool things like that. So I just think that if more people know about how awesome geology is, then you know more people will come and study with us, which would be really cool because geologists are really important for um you know these finding more of these critical minerals and our um, response to climate change and yeah. turning
0: off of the fossil fuels. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just finally, the other thing I wanted to, to sort of ask you about is, you know, we have like one of the most dynamic planets. You know, Earth is amazing. And the idea that geology is a science of the past, I think, is just flat out ignorant. You know, there's so much dynamic activity going on with the Earth at the moment, which is amazing. But there's also so much dynamic activity in other areas of our solar system and not just planets, but also moons. And we saw with the New Horizons craft that went past even Pluto, there was a lot of dynamic activity going on. I mean, do you are you engaged in that in any way? Do you teach that with your students? I mean, there must be there must be a lot now in terms of planetary geology as well as you know just what's happening here on Earth. Earth's probably enough for most people, but you know, if that's not their thing, presumably there's there's a lot of other stuff now too.
5: Yeah, there's yeah, some amazing research happening on other planets. I was just reading a paper that was published a couple of weeks ago in Science where they've imaged the structure of Mars mm. by doing, you know, by this seismic sort of uh, study so they know you know the thickness of the crust and the mantle and you know it's just amazing that we know that about another planet and that's actually you know there's a PhD student at Monash Tani Burke who's just started a PhD and she's studying the structure of Mars and she's going to do it by looking at the rocks so Martian meteorites that have fallen on Earth she's looking at those and she's going to figure out how Dense, all those rocks are, and um, figure out about sort of the structure of Mars by using those rocks. So that is insanely cool. So I'm not a planetary geologist like that. That's not my um, thing. I love Earth, and I just want to study Man. rocks from Earth. But there's a lot of cool stuff happening in, uh, in planetary geology at Monash Uni. Um, so out of you know Angie Tompkins's lab, if you know you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, yeah, really cool. Yep.
0: And just uh, in our last minute, uh, you, you're doing a bit of a push for for women in geology. I know there's been a bit of, a, you know, a lowering of numbers there and low numbers to start with. How's, how's that going?
5: Yeah, it's going well. Yeah, I think with increased awareness of the problem, we're starting to see some solutions. So that's really awesome. So, yeah, the number of women in geology academia and in industry is disproportionately low. Mm. So my classrooms, they're half male, half female. Like women love doing geology, right? It's not about not liking it. They bloody love it. But they are leaving my degree and going into industry or academia and then just dropping out like after Mm. a year or two years, something's going wrong. Actually quite a few different things are going wrong. That means that we're losing them. So we're trying to fix those sort of things, but also putting in place, um, you know, more of a sense of community for women who are already in um, academia in industry uh, through an organisation called uh, Women in Earth and Environmental Sciences Australasia. So the acronym is Wamisa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I'm part of Wamisa and uh, we're building a community of um, Australasian Earth and Environmental Scientists yep. uh, to sort of yeah build the networks and uh, get the mentoring happening and, and increase the profile of women in Earth and Environmental Science. Excellent.
0: Well, Melanie, good luck with that. Good luck with your 100 days of geology. Some great pictures there and, and so forth, folks. Get on and uh, follow Melanie Finch if you can. Uh, great talking to a geologist, always fun on this show. We don't have enough, so you know, send some more our way. We love, we love talking about it. About the, the structure of the Earth and its history and so forth. Fantastic stuff. Uh, thanks so much for being our guest on Einstein and GoGo today.
5: Thanks so much, Dr. Shane.
0: Folks, that was Dr. Melanie Finch from the School of Atmosphere and Environment at Monash University. From me, though, remember, science is everywhere. No matter where you are, folks, stay safe, uh, get yourself vaccinated when you are able, and uh, we will talk to you again next week. Remember, science is everywhere. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and GoGo. A weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us
5: via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.